All right, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. This is uh, the end of a small section within Philippians where he is dealing with a battle for stability. If you go to chapter 4, verse 1, he calls us to stand firm. That's where I'm getting that idea of stability. And then I think he gives us real practical applications in what this looks like within our lives. So if you look down into verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. And so he is, he is concerned that the church, which is experiencing massive challenges in various ways, let me just remind you, their, their church planter and apostle that they love dearly named Paul is in prison. They sent a messenger, Epaphroditus, who almost dies in ministering to Paul. They have external pressure from civil authorities and the society around them. We don't know the nature of that exactly, but Paul says that they have the same type of conflict he has, and he's in jail. And if you remember, Philippi is the place where Paul was stoned and imprisoned, and while singing hymns with Silas, there's an earthquake and he gets released. So Philippi has a track record of not only hostility, but violent abuse and illegal activity. When the gospel's on the line. Not only that, you'll know that in in chapter 4, there is internal conflict within the church. And the apostle is calling the church in the middle of internal conflict, external affliction, financial poverty, and the advance of the gospel and even his own needs and the almost death of Epaphroditus to be stable. When you think of all that was happening in our church, That's a lot to have happening. And he's saying, stand firm. If you think about anxiety, you have a precious church member who's near death, Epaphroditus. You have Paul who's in prison. It looks like the gospel's not doing much to free him. You have church leaders fighting with one another. Uh, In in verse 2, Judea and Syntyche. This is hard. This is rough. He says, Stand firm. Don't be anxious. So again, look in verse 6. It says, don't be anxious. Instead of anxiety, we're to be going to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. Paul did that when he was in jail, singing with Silas. Like They, they see his example in this. And then you come to verse 8. Rather than having anxiety, we are to be putting our minds to, um, to the discipline of thinking about those things that are true and pure and just and honorable and lovely, and of good report, those things that are commendable, those things that are virtuous, those things that are praiseworthy. Think about these things, he says. So there is a discipline in their minds that he is calling them, that by the grace of God, they be careful to move their minds to deliberate, to consider, and think about these things. Our, Our minds can be a little bit like runaway horses going in random directions wherever they want to go. And and Scripture says, instead of letting your mind take you, you take control of your mind and place it on these things. And then in verse 9, the the focus of this morning, look down at verse 9, I'll read it for you. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now notice that at the end of verse 7, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Now at the end of verse 9, it's the God of peace who will be present with us. In the middle of, of all of these uncertain circumstances, the hope of the believer is God's
divine gift of peace. God gives peace is his call. But he says there's something you must do to pursue this peace. And that's where in verse 8 he says think about these things. And in verse 9 he says practice these things. If you are told that peace is a state of mind, like some type of zen calm, not only is that unbiblical, frankly, it's simply pagan. Now, the way that Christian pursues peace is through prayer with thanksgiving by deliberately moving their mind to think about the things that are true. And we could repeat that list. I don't know that we need to every time. Maybe we can say it this way just to, to, to capture those phrases. If I say, think about those things that are virtuous. Recognize I'm saying all of those things. Think about those things that are virtuous. And then he concludes by saying, practice these things. So, so what are the things that are to be practiced? Well, it's not to be uh, divorced from verse 8 where he gives those list of eight virtues and he immediately says, do these things. In other words, the apostle would be saying something like this. This is how I live. Live like me. I live out the thoughts of verse 8. I practice them. So he's not trying to drive a wedge between verses 8 and 9. He's saying the outcome of meditating and thinking and considering those things that are virtuous is a life of excellence and virtue. And if you want to see what that looks like, follow my example. So let me just suggest, I think if we're going to have stable lives, we initially are required to learn what to do. He's moving from thinking to practice in verse 9. So we have to learn what to do. So there's both an intellectual element, learning, and there's a practical element, doing. We learn what to do. Every, every parent probably does this. Whether it's your dad teaching how to mow the lawn so you don't leave these strips of unmowed grass. We always call them mohawks in our family. I'd be like, man, I see mohawks all over the grass. Get out there and fix it. Dad shows us how to do it. Or whether it's mom taking a child in the kitchen and teaching them how to bake cookies and, and put the ingredients together and assemble and bake and do this well. Parents instruct, not merely by telling, but most often through telling and doing, exampling and showing. The Apostle Paul is committed to that same form of discipleship. Look again in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard, and seen. So he's got these four things of, of which he's done the instructing in. When he says seen, you have no doubt then that not only is he saying, do these things, he's what? He's saying, you've seen me, you've watched me, I've done it in your presence, so you should do that too. In other words, the Apostle Paul appeals to what they've already learned, what they've already heard instructed, what they've already seen exampled, and he says there's a foundation for your behavior. You don't have to start at square one. I've already given you an example. You've already learned this. Now, what have they learned? Let me just briefly just survey this, and this is not an exhaustive study of Philippians here, but let me just give you six things. I think Paul shows them really clearly. He has, he has shown them a commitment to the bold sharing of the message of Christ. Philippians 1.18, as he's talking to them about prison, he says that he's rejoicing because in, in this way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that he's rejoicing. 
were to go through the rest of, of the book of Philippians, you'd see this repeatedly. He is driven to see the gospel move into the unreached and the unsaved hearts and minds. Now let me just frame this out for you. Paul says to the Philippians, in the middle of crisis, pray with thanksgiving, think about things that are virtuous, and do stuff like me. What's the stuff? Sharing the gospel. What happened when he shared the gospel? Where's he at because of sharing the gospel? He's in prison. You notice what Paul didn't say? This is a way to get rid of the stuff that causes anxiety. In fact, the very thing that led to his imprisonment is the gospel that he says, come and be like me in sharing. You can imagine the Philippians working through that process going, wait, hold on a second, Paul. You're in prison and you're saying do stuff that led to your imprisonment. You know, often, I think when we battle against things like anxiety or we battle for stability, we think we need to change the world around us or we need to change the behavior the world doesn't like, but that will not lead to stability. Stability is standing firm in God's plan for you. You cannot possibly do that with a pragmatic approach that wrestles through kind of a human strategy and scheme to avoid conflict. You will have conflict if you're human and have a pulse. Did I say that right? You will have conflict if you're human and have a pulse. The question is whether you'll be righteous in conflict, whether you'll be in the right when you have conflict. Paul lived in conflict with the Roman government, but he was stable. He was able to rest in the care of God. Not only is he bold in sharing the gospel, he's sacrificial in ministry partnerships. He calls upon the Philippians to share that mindset that looks at others as more important than themselves. In chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be encouraged by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. He uses Timothy as an example of that mindset that he has where Timothy cares more about them than he does himself. That's the pattern of, of living like Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, sacrificial ministry partnership is to be the norm for the Christian. This is not super Christian living. This is the whole church is called to live up to this example of sharing the gospel and sacrificing for the gospel. Not only that, he regularly has prayer. I actually did a little hyphenated word there. He regularly has faith-filled prayer. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer. So he has this faith-filled prayer of gratitude all the time. Like he is a prayer warrior is what we would say. And again, if he's telling the Philippians, the whole church to do this, we're all called to be prayer warriors, which may mean that the idea of prayer warrior doesn't sound very special because we're all that. It's the norm. It's average. Everyone is praying like this, praying at all times in every remembrance with thanksgiving. Not only that, he's willing to suffer. Suffering is not something he avoids, particularly through disobedience or neglect of the gospel. He recognizes it has been granted for you not only to believe, but also to suffer. And then he says, you're engaged in the same conflict 
that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. So when he says, come and be like me, what's he calling them to? Suffering. Conflict. Philippians 2, 29 and 30. Receive. Again, he's speaking about Epaphroditus. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your faith. Or, excuse me, lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus is to be honored, which I would assume then means all of us should honor and try to emulate Epaphroditus. Well, what did he do? He nearly died for the work of Christ. Now, if you're considering your commitment to the work of Christ, would you say you would be willing to risk death for it? That's the example Paul says we are to embrace. Gratitude and worship regardless of circumstance is, is the fifth characteristic I see of Paul. In Philippians 4.19, he ends this, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever. He's writing to a poor church as he's in jail and also poor. And how does he end? Our God will supply whatever we need. To him be glory. Amen. What a faith-filled call to worship. I know my God. I know he can supply everything. To him be glory. The end of the book. <laughs> like, the end. Nothing more needs to be said. This is the conclusion of the matter. Our God is gloriously able to supply everything we need. We rest. We rest our case. Our faith rests in him. We are confident, and we end with worship. That's the example of the Apostle Paul. Come and be like me, the Apostle says. Worship the Lord in poverty because he is the one who can supply our needs, and he is glorious. He has a relentless pursuit of Christ himself and Christ-likeness in that. Philippians 3, 14 through 17, I press toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I say relentless because perhaps you can get fatigue because obedience is hard. Perhaps you might get comfortable because you feel like obedience has been achieved. Perhaps you get self-confident because you look around the room and you feel like you're doing pretty good compared to the rest of us schmucks. Perhaps, perhaps you're looking around this room and you're thinking, eh, I could grow a little bit, but I'm doing okay. I'm maybe a little below average, but not too far off. The Apostle Paul has no room for that. The relentless pursuit of Christ himself and Christ's likeness that he might be a pleasure to Christ. It says, let us hold this true. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example. So he calls them to follow Christ with him. And if the Apostle Paul is relentlessly following Christ and calling others to follow with him, and then he later says, be like me, then all of us are called to not only be examples to others, but the example is someone who relentlessly follows Christ, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward towards Christ and conformity to Christ. Okay, so this is the example Paul gives us in Philippi. He says, this is what Christianity should look like. This is the norm. Come and be like me. Now, he's not saying that in arrogance. He's saying that because he's been deliberate in his discipleship. I'm going to take you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 really quick. 
If any of you struggle with the sin of laziness, this is one of the most compelling verses on just the virtue of work. Or sections, maybe I should say. 2 Thessalonians 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you received from us. Now let me just introduce this. This is an incredibly authoritative declaration, isn't it? And he starts with, in the name of the Lord, do this. Like, like he is pulling the weight of Jesus Christ's authority into this command, this prohibition. Have nothing to do with a person who's idle, who's regarding our tradition as unimportant. They'll say, what's the tradition? Let's keep reading. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. You see that exampling there? He says, you've rejected the tradition. Well, what tradition? The imitation of us. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked, did you catch this? Night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we had not the right, but to give ourselves as an example to imitate. Now, as you unpack that, here's what the apostle is saying. As someone commissioned by Jesus Christ, the church was obligated to support him financially. He says, I did not take that right. I had the right to get a paycheck. I mean, maybe in today's parlance, you could say, you gave me a check. I never cashed it, never deposited it. I have a pile of checks on my desk. I'm not taking a bit of them. When I go to your house to eat, I pay for the food you bring. When we go to restaurants, I don't let you pay. You say, well, Paul, where's this money coming from? He goes, well, I do ministry by day and do tent making by night to support myself because you're a poor church and I don't want you to think that the gospel is a means of being lazy. I can just tell you as a pastor that hits home. Lazy pastors are wicked pastors taking advantage of the sheep. Pastors ought to be some of the hardest working people in the whole congregation. There's no sympathy that Paul has for idle people. He says, have nothing to do with them. Now, the tradition he left them, that he says if they're disobeying the tradition, have nothing to do with them, is his behavior, not his preaching. Did you catch that? Paul says, I was preaching by behavior because the very thing that some men would be tempted to do is preach the church to work hard while they don't work hard. It's easy to get up and say, hey, y'all should work hard and then be lazy. I mean, parents, you have that same temptation, right? It might be that at times I've made my kids clean, our, clean their rooms without my room being clean. I don't know if any of you parents have been guilty of that. I'm not acknowledging or denying the claim, but it may have happened in some homes in this church that a parent says, clean your room, and the child graciously doesn't say back, why don't you clean yours? How easy it would, would it be for a pastor with all the truth of God's word behind them to say, don't be lazy, while he himself is disobedient to the command? I mean, how firm is this command when he later says, don't even eat with them. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There is no room in God's house 
for people to be moochers who are lazy. If you don't want to work, we are obligated by God not to help you have food. That's how firm he is in this commitment. Now, I bring you to this text merely to point out that Paul is deliberate in his example to the point of deep sacrifice. He is laboring night and day in order to preach with his behavior. So when he tells the people in Philippi, imitate me, it's not as though he's pulling out a, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, you should follow me. He's very deliberate. He knows he has a spotlight on him, and he's saying, I'm living in God's grace so that you know how to act. Because some of the problem with disobedience or neglect is not a heart of rebellion. It's simply we don't know how. How are you to be gracious when someone's hurting you? Godly people should show us the way. How do you respond when you're financially in hardship and God calls you to give sacrificially? Godly people should lead the way. How do you respond in the middle of COVID? Godly people should lead the way. It is really complex and difficult and takes a lot of discernment to know how to live in this messy world. Godly people should lead the way. And so when you wonder, when you are are struggling to find out how to apply God's word, Look at how godly people do it and do likewise. Right, so learn how to live. That's the first requirement for stable living. The second one, the second requirement is, is very simple. Do it. A little bit like Nike. The actual point is godly stability requires us to take action. There's a lot of talk in the Christian world. There are a lot of people who can sing praises on Sunday and their life is pathetic on Monday. A lot of people will talk about how much they love God and His Word remains closed all week and their hearts have no forgiveness or repentance in them. Godly godly stability requires us to take action. Look again in verse 9. What you have learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen in me, practice these things. That's an ongoing verb has the idea that we don't just do them once, we continually, repeatedly do them. We work at this. It is our habit. It is regular. And it's an action verb. Do this. Again, I think in the Christian world, we struggle sometimes with not doing things. We struggle for multiple reasons. But Christians should be doers. James simply says it this way, be Doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. It's fairly simple to think you're really godly when you're not. Listen to good sermons, read the Bible, and don't change. You'll be self-deceived and super confident you're godly. It's what is natural. We affirm what's true in the Bible. We read the Bible, we're like, oh, that's good. We don't change our behavior. We don't see where we're misstepping. We don't see where we're not like Christ or the Apostle Paul's example. The Bible calls us to be deliberately enacting and reproducing as we imitate Christ, the very character of God. But that takes deliberate work. Kevin DeYoung in his book has titled, I think just a fantastic title that at first might not strike you as very deep. You know what the title of his book is? Just do something. Because we have a bunch of Christians who do nothing. And they're frozen. 
Whether it's anxiety that freezes them or ignorance. I don't know what to do. Do something, please. Do something. But it might be fear. I don't know what to do and I don't want to do something wrong. Do something. Now, he defines something, right? Like, we get there. But we have a very mystical view of the world. And frankly, it's not biblical. It's heathen. That, that we have got to find the perfect someone out there or we'll marry the wrong one. Man, that's a ton of stress. I, I, just, just unpack that a little bit. Imagine that you're a, a 17, almost 18-year-old boy. You're trying to figure out where to go to college, knowing very well that you'll very likely meet your spouse in college. You get the decision of college wrong. You get to get the spouse wrong. And if you get the spouse wrong, everything downstream of that is just a train wreck. God never describes finding his will as though it's that way. Ever. If you're trying to find out some precise way of doing something, whether or not you should take job A or B, and you think that it's a matter of prayer where God will lay or burden your heart and that's what you should do, you are misreading the text of Scripture. But it will freeze you because you're waiting for some like, like, burning acid in your soul as you pray over like option A or option B, like, Lord, oh, this does not feel right. Like I started praying about company A, I just don't feel settled. You read company B or start praying about company B and you're like, okay, yeah, no, this, I have peace now. That is mystical trash. It's not biblical thinking. And if that's how you're thinking about spouse or college, if that's how you're thinking about anything in life, you know what you're going to do? Nothing. Because you're frozen. You're waiting for some antacid rush at night. Like, oh man, I am not settled. I, I'm going to rethink my whole decision about college. Whew, man. Who knows where I'd be if I went to the wrong college? I know where you'd be. You'd be at a college that probably is a great college, but you'd be gripped by anxiety that's the wrong college and now you're afraid to date anyone. This passage gives us a better pattern. Here's what it is. I could repeat the, the character of Paul who's sacrificial, prayer-filled, worshiping God, driven for the advance of the church in the gospel of Christ. That's how you know what God's will is. Do that stuff. But do it. Don't sit on the sidelines wringing your hands because you're anxious about whether or not to do it. Do it. Practice these things. We'll say, well, I, man, I'm, whew, that's a lot. Well, let's back up. Think about what's true. Think about what's honorable. Think about what is of good report or commendable. Think about those things that are honorable. Think about those things that are just and pure and virtuous. Think about these things. And it will lead you to appreciate in Scripture the example of Paul, the example of Christ, and to pattern yourself after that, and then you do it. I think there's a, another reason besides anxiety that maybe we have a tendency to, to be frozen. And that is we, we have a very um, troubled relationship to rigorous obedience. And we mistake it for legalism. 
And so, and so we, we, we are concerned that if we hear a, I mean, if I just got up here and said, do, 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 I think people would walk out and be like, man, that, that's really harsh and legalistic, would be the kind of intuitive response of the American church. Now, I am not, hopefully, saying just do, do, do. But let me encourage you that Jesus Christ says that if you love me, you will keep my commands. The Apostle Paul calls upon us to do all of these things. Like, like there's, no, there's no gap in Scripture for, for us to say something like, listen, I know God's commands are good and wholesome and right, but you know what? I don't want you to feel burdened, so just pick and choose. Scripture never gives us that type of approach to the law or to God's demands on us or requirements of us. You know, when God says he loves a cheerful giver, he doesn't want you to hold your money back so that you can be cheerful holding it back. If you're not cheerful, repent and then give. But don't not give. But somehow we've read that command of God, God loves a cheerful giver that if I'm kind of struggling with joy and giving that I shouldn't give. That's not the right application. But we can be that in all sorts of ways of life where we recognize God wants us to be motivated out of love and joy and we need to be driven by good passions to obedience. And so because we're a little lackluster in the good passions, we just don't obey because we're waiting for the good passions to come. Okay, so let me just break down, and I think hopefully really helpful for you. There are two corrupted views of obedience that I think we need to just identify and point out. The, the first corrupted view is that God has given us these commands and they're rooted in unkindness. They will therefore rob me of joy and satisfaction. Now, we would never say it like that. We'd just skip that middle part. We'd say it like this. If I obey God's word, I will have less happiness. But what we really should be saying is just like, let's tease that out. Because God is unkind, if I obey him, I'll be less happy. Can we all agree that that's nonsense? Like, that's theological blasphemy. To declare God to be unkind or not good. So, so, so let me just reshape that. Could you agree with me by faith that the obedience of God, like obeying him with a heart full of commitment in every way we possibly can see that we need to obey him is actually the best path for joy? Would you agree with that? Shouldn't that energize our obedience? So, so, Parents, we really twist up our kids when we have commands that do them harm. Or they're, they're, they're actually said or spoken in such a way that we're self-serving because we reflect nothing of the grace of the Father when we do that. And we teach our children that the Father, rather than being gracious, is actually unkind. But our commands should lead our children to good because that is how our Heavenly Father fathers us. So when, when your teen or when you and your heart are struggling or, or maybe just in commitment levels, you're struggling to be committed to obedience, you need to evaluate, do I actually think God's plan that he calls me to do in obedience is good, will lead to joy? Do I believe that? Because the world tells us again and again and again it doesn't. I mean, have you ever heard and you can imagine this, on, especially where you have a lot of men working, the idea that celibacy until marriage is a, is a pathway for, for lack of joy. Like, wait, wait, hold on. You're not going to have any 
sexual interaction with anyone except your spouse, and even then, not until you're married? I could never do that, man. No way, that's horrible. Like, why is it horrible? It's not horrible. It's good. But I can tell you a lot of Christians actually believe that lie. That faithfulness and sexual purity actually are keeping them from happiness. And we know they're believing that lie because they're struggling with pornography. They're struggling with lustful thoughts. They're having a hard time being faithful to their wives. So I know a lot of men struggle with believing this. Do you believe that obedience to God is the best pathway to joy? If so, it will help you battle against sin and follow the the example of Paul. God's commands are good because he is kind and he's loving and he's good. And that will help you battle against sexual impurity, against drunkenness. It will help you battle against anger. It will help you battle for contentment and peace in your home. God's commands are good. And call your family to obey God. Call your church to obey God. Call your church to sacrifice deeply for God. They will never in eternity be disappointed that you did, ever. All right. The other way we kind of twist the law is a corrupted view of God as unloving. So either he's unkind, so these commands lead me to misery. I mean, again, you can imagine a a young child saying, Dad, you're just telling me that you don't want me to do this because you don't want me to have any fun. Right? Like, you can see the unkindness they're they're declaring about their dad in that statement. And Christians have about that much maturity when they think about that of God, right? Like, you're just doing this because you want me miserable. The other one is like, God, you're, you're making me do these things in order to earn your love. Now think about the not only unbiblical declaration, but the way we're saying God's unloving. Did God love you when you were unlovely? Does God love you because you're lovely? Do we do the law or obey God's commands with rigor and passion in order to earn anything from God like love? No, God freely gives his love. God loves us while we were sinners. It's not as though God looked at, at us and was like, wow, Mark, you're doing pretty good. You're, you're actually savable. I, you know what? You're so lovely, I'll love you. What a shallow, cheap love of God. So when God gives me his commands, he's not doing them as some stairway to a place of love. I think that needs to be clear because this is a promise verse. And so God promises us goodness if we obey. But our love and security in the relationship with God is not a means or or is not a result of obedience. Doing good is not a means of earning his love. Just like we would tell any, any couple that's struggling, you cannot love your spouse on the basis of their performance. Performance-based marriages are marriages destined for failure because there's no room for your spouse to be normal, a sinner, and struggle. Rather, your marriage must reflect the commitment to love regardless of better or worse. God does not love you because you're good. Having rejected those two, and I think they're, they're similar thoughts, because if you think God's law is unkind or his commands are unkind, you're going to justify disobedience as a pathway for your good. If you think God is loving you because you obey, you're going to have a loveless, faithless obedience that echoes the Pharisees. But 
if you recognize that God gives you commands because he's kind and because he's loving, then you actually see a rigorous commitment to obedience as good and right, as a way to get good, as a way to receive from God joy and blessing and goodness. That's what this text says. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things, and what happens? This is a conclusion. This is like a if then. If you do this, then what happens? The God of peace will be with you. So when we're talking about hard things in life, and the Philippians had a lot of hard things, how do I get peace? I have a life of gratitude-filled prayer. I have a life of deliberate thoughts, not on what could be, not filled with anxieties, but of thinking about what is true and virtuous. And then I have a life of proactive Christ-likeness. Diligently pursuing Christ and Christ-likeness as seen in the example of Paul and of godly people within his church. And, here's the promise, the God of peace will be with you. God of peace. Why God of peace? You realize in verse 7, it's the peace of God? Now it's the God of peace? Now here's the point. God is the, the resource from which all good peace comes. In other words, God is the peace-producing God. The source of it. If you want peace, where are you going to get it from? It's not going to be alcohol. It's not going to be a perfect spouse. You will not get peace when you have a million dollars in your checking account. You will only get true peace from God, the one who gives it. He is the source of peace. You want peace in your home? You need God's grace to come in strong. You want peace in your, in your work life? You need to be someone who's standing stably in godliness with godly thoughts and gratitude-filled prayer. You have a life filled with anxiety and you want the presence of the God of peace? Read this text and honor its implications. Live like this passage says. God is the one who produces peace. Therefore, if you want these promises, I suggest to you that you Pursue the grace of God through a gratitude-filled prayer life, a disciplined thought life, and an active obedience in Christ-likeness. God is not only the source of peace. When you look at, like, for instance, peace in Scripture, it almost always comes in a big-picture, fullness-of-life type of peace. I've mentioned this before, but in the Old Testament, a greeting would have been what? Shalom? You'll still hear that if you go to, the, uh, if you go to Israel? It speaks to like peace with God, peace with God, peace with your fellow man in your society, and peace within the family. It speaks of goodness and wholeness in relationship to all of creation. So number six has this prayer of benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. pretty simple. Where do you get peace from? God. Why are we so negligent then of pursuing him? Because it seems paradoxical that we would pursue peace by, will, by being willing to 
give the gospel when it's not received well, when suffering comes for those of us who hold it. It it seems as though the very thing that's causing conflict in Paul's life is Christ. And Paul is saying, follow my example. I am not calling you to avoid conflict, but rather be stable within it. Dads, if you're going to stand up for Christ in your home, you're going to, you're going to receive some pushback. If you're going to be faithful at church, there are going to be coworkers who don't like it. If you're going to stand up within the church and challenge and encourage and pray for others who may not be doing great, there's going to be moments of conflict. We are not conflict avoiders. We should be people of peace within the storm. That's what God calls us to. And God gives that peace with his presence. As you read scripture and you come to Genesis 3 where sin enters, God comes into the garden and Adam and Eve flee from the what? Can anyone fill in that phrase? They flee from the presence of God. You go to chapter 4. Cain kills Abel. God disciplines Cain. And then Cain leaves the presence of the Lord. You go to Revelation chapter 22. And you have heaven. And God is with us. And he is our God and we are his people. When God is describing the most glorious, most beneficial, most joy-filled, most peaceful place in all of existence, some of the few words he uses to describe it are, I will be with you and your God and you will be my people. should be no surprise then. Then in Philippi, he challenges this church to be stable. That he calls them to understand that God's peace guards us. And the God of peace's presence, peace's presence, that doesn't sound right somehow, but the God of peace will be with us. And that secures us in stability so that we're not shaken, so that we don't disobey, so that we're not anxious in the middle of storms. There are only about four other times in Scripture in the New Testament that the God of peace is used. It's almost always with internal conflicts in the church. In Romans, it actually says, Satan will be crushed under your feet because the God of peace will do it. In 1 Corinthians, you have a church filled with fighting, and he says that the God of peace will accomplish this work. You have it in Thessalonica. We already read Thessalonians where there's internal problems because of laziness and people mooching. And he's like, the God of peace will accomplish this. We come to Philippians, and there's also conflict, and he says, the God of peace will be present with you. Is the God of peace bringing peace to your life? If you want the peace of God, if you want to pursue peace because your life is filled with turmoil, your life is filled with instability, one moment you're going one direction, one moment you're going the other, it is not a matter of discerning the secret will of the Lord. It is a matter of Prayer with thanksgiving is a matter of righteous, virtuous thinking. And it's a matter of doing what that virtuous thinking would call you to do as you look to Christ. It is not a mystery in the pursuit of peace. It is plain. It's just work. It's a willingness to be hurt in conflict. It's a willingness to live at peace with people who are causing conflict. But above all, peace is a grace. And so we pursue the God of peace to get the grace. May God give you peace. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's sometimes really hard to know how much you lead us and how far ahead of us Christ is. It feels overwhelming. It feels like your expectations upon us are too great. And Lord, I pray for people who might feel like that this morning, that you'd remind them that they have the grace and the strength that only the Spirit can give. So Lord, give them a softness of heart to submit to the Scripture and give them a joy and a passion for the person of Christ that they might be conformed to him and walk in sweet fellowship with him. And Lord, when they do these things, I am confident that your promise will prove true. You will grant peace. And your peace will guard their hearts and minds. And your presence to give peace will be with them. Father, for those who are struggling in disobedience, for those who have never experienced your peace because they remain outside of saving grace, I ask that this morning you would call them to turn from sin and pursue goodness by pursuing the Christ who died for sinners. Lord, I pray that you would make this church a place that is not necessarily conflict-free, but a place that is righteous, right in our thinking, filled with gratitude-energized prayer. Lord, help us to be people of peace so that we reflect the God of peace's character within our homes, in our workplaces, in our church. Lord, if this is who you are, then you call us to be people of peace. So let us pursue peace with as much power and confidence as you give us so that Christ is honored in people who look like him. In Jesus' name. Amen.